This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Terrell Givens did graduate work in intellectual history at Cornell and in comparative literature at UNC Chapel Hill, where he received his PhD. He is a professor emeritus of literature and religion at the University of Richmond and the Neil A. Maxwell Senior Research Fellow at Brigham Young University. He has appeared as a commentator on NPR, CNN, and in the PBS documentary, The Mormons. His writing has been praised by the New York Times as provocative reading, and his numerous books include A History of Latter-day Saint Theology, Wrestling the Angel, and Feeding the Flock, a survey of the idea of premortal life in Western thought. Also, When Souls Had Wings, and several studies of LDS scripture, culture, and history. With his wife, Fiona, he is the co-author of The God Who Weeps, The Christ Who Heals, The Crucible of Doubt, and most recently, All Things New, Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between. He teaches Sunday school in his Midway, Utah ward. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm your host, Tara McCausland, and a very warm welcome to Terrell Givens. Welcome, Terrell. Good to be here. Thanks, Tara. It's honestly a, a treat to have Terrell on. Terrell's writing was probably my first exposure to LDS apologetics. <laughs> and I read your um, letter to a doubter a number of years ago and was really struck by it. So I appreciate all the good that you are doing in the world, Terrell, and, and your wife, Fiona, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but to kick off, can you just tell us a little bit about your upbringing and religious background and how that has impacted your personal and professional and spiritual life? Sure. Um, I was born uh, of agnostic parents, and uh, but with strong religious backgrounds on both sides, uh, Baptist, or excuse me, Methodist uh, ministers on one side and Presbyterian ministers on the other. And my father was, I guess you could call him a, a, a seeker, a quester. And when I was about eight, he uh, encountered the, the, the gospel through a friend. And I still remember as a young seven-year-old child, listening to missionaries come and do things with a flannel board and teach us the gospel. So uh, my family joined the church when I was a child, but it didn't stick. And uh, so by the time I was a teen, family had kind of drifted away, and I had drifted away. And then uh, I guess one of the more formative experiences that transpired was when I was 16, my father suddenly decided that we were going to move back east. And without any friends or connections or job, he uprooted the family of nine and moved us back to Virginia. And I still remember, he picked Virginia out. He thought it was the most beautiful spot in the country to move to from the desert of Arizona. We showed up at a campground. I remember the campground attendant said, how long are you here for? And my father said, until I find work. So like Nephi of old, I literally lived in a tent. (laughs) That was my home address while my father looked for work. And uh, he, he looked up the local church with 
which we hadn't any hadn't had any contact for a number of years. And it was a small little rural uh, group of about 40 members of the church. And of course, family of nine moves in and they took us in with open arms. I was 16 at the time. And so that's really the point at which I began to sink down my own roots and read the Book of Mormon for the first time and uh, had my, my deep uh, conversion experience that really took and set me on a, on a new path. So I guess the, a, a couple of things about that background that I think have been formative both professionally and, and spiritually. One is that I, I, I feel like I'm an inside, insider outsider. Uh, we're converts, but then we discovered that we actually had pioneer ancestors. And uh, so living, growing up most of my formative years in the Bible Belt in the South, uh, I experienced the church in a radically different context than you know typical Wasatch Front Mormons do. And so I, I learned to think about the gospel and hear the gospel and talk about the gospel through the eyes of uh, a skeptical non-LDS uh, audience and surroundings and colleagues. And I think that that's helped me uh, to have maybe a particular kind of uh, empathy for and understanding of how easily misunderstood and misrepresented the church can be in the eyes of, of others. I appreciate that because I think those of us who have grown up in the church and not seen the other side or been exposed to a lot of other faith traditions, sometimes we do have a hard time relating with people from different backgrounds and maybe are not as certainly empathetic or appreciative of what they can bring to the table and to, to our faith. Yeah. And I, I think at least in my own case, that that was an, a really important conversion experience that I had to have because becoming uh, or coming of age in the church in the 1970s and 80s, right, we were fed a diet of, you know, the great and abominable church and the great apostasy and a kind of fortress mentality. And so I accepted many of those positions and attitudes kind of unquestioningly. And then I found that with my first employment uh, as a professor at the University of Richmond, that my closest friends, very, very dear and close friends, became uh, a born-again um, Episcopalian, a secular Jew, and a Presbyterian who had left the ministry to become a Buddhist. So <laughs> wow. suddenly I'm, I'm exposed to this really wonderful array of different kinds of spirituality and so I, I kind of learned firsthand through intimate experience with these people who were incredibly good people uh, to cast aside many of the, the prejudices and assumptions that I had grown up with and uh, begin to appreciate the vast resources of good people of faith from across the spectrum. And I think that's, that's sunk deep. And then of course, Fiona, I think never had the same kinds of barriers uh, that I had to overcome. She grew up Catholic, dearly loves the Catholic tradition, the, the liturgy and ritual and, and, and great mystics of the Catholic past. And so much of my appreciation came from learning firsthand from her, uh, the beauties of, of a non-LDS past. And so we've tried, I think, very, very conscientiously and persistently to bring 
an array of these different voices into conversation with the restoration. Uh, the kind of trope that we use to refer to this is this practice is the, the voices in the wilderness. Um, Fiona has done what I think is a really masterful rereading of Revelation chapter 12, which is right an allegory of the so-called apostasy. And the, the thing that she noted and developed into, I think, a whole beautiful approach to faith was that the truth wasn't taken from the earth according to the allegory of Revelation 12, right? It, it, it went into the wilderness where it was fed and nurtured of the spirit. And so that was a clue to her and then to us that the spirit of God was very active uh, and very much involved in preserving many of the, the most beautiful truths of the gospel through the ages of the past, through myriad personages and voices. And we've tried to recuperate some of those and bring them to the knowledge of a Latter-day Saint public. Mm -hmm. Well, and Terrell and Fiona recently released a new book called All Things New, which actually is the fodder for a lot of this conversation that will follow. Um, it's an excellent book and you do bring out that point, which I love and have been more recently exposed to that idea. And so I think with your background, um, yeah, you, you have a unique appreciation for what the myriad faith traditions can bring to the world and to us as a membership of the church. Um, but also you have a unique perspective on the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will be discussing the unique gifts that come to us as re the result of the restoration, but we're going to be framing it in a little bit of a different way than sometimes we talk about the restoration. And I wanted to preface it with this. In your introduction of All Things New, you started off talking about how the gospel is defined as the good news. And we've, we've heard that before. Many of us in the church have been told that. But as you point out, many Latter-day Saints don't find joy in this gospel of good news. And in fact, many are experiencing anxiety and shame and constant feelings of inadequacy in the church. I, if you don't mind, from the introduction, you pose some really poignant questions. So, quote, if God weeps over our misery, why does Christ need to allay God's wrath? If we are in a state of awful woundedness, why do we call Christ our Savior rather than our healer? If we are counseled, never shut the doors of your hearts to your children. Why do we fear God will shut his? If Christ came not to condemn the world, why do we fear judgment? Finally, we are told not to fear, but we do. We are urged to rejoice, but we cannot. Something is wrong with this picture. I wish I could read that with the same buttery voice that your wife has. <laughs> but I loved that. And I agree, Terrell. I feel like something is wrong with this picture. I believe the gospel isn't just the good news. It's the best news I've ever heard. But I believe in order for the restored gospel of Jesus Christ to truly be a source of peace and joy, we need to better understand just what Joseph Smith restored. And that, again, is the primary message of this episode. So what are some foundational Christian truths that were lost over the centuries that made a restoration of all things vital? Well, as one, okay, so one of the first questions that we were asking ourselves in, in preparing this book was, 
what is the baseline of Christianity? In other words, if we think of what Joseph Smith did as a restoration, then how specific and concrete can we be in terms of recognizing what it was about original Christianity that he was restoring? And so Fiona and I have really tried to immerse ourselves in the texts of the first three or four Christian centuries. And one way of thinking about early Christianity, at least this is the way that we think about it, is that there was a comprehensive theology of love. There is a, a, a and, and, and Tom Holland, who's a, a great intellectual historian, recently made the statement that when, when love loses its theological moorings, then all bets are off. And, and so this might sound like a bit of a, a digression, but I feel like I need to explain this critical point because it's really a key to, to what we were trying to do. What he's saying is that it's, it's easy to talk about love. Love is one of the most overused and banalized and trivialized concepts in English vocabulary, right? You love a pizza or you love your daughter. Um, and so we think that it doesn't help much to talk about God's love unless we understand in really concrete, specific terms what that means. And the early Christians understood love in a particular way. They understood God's love, particularly in a parental way, that God's love was absolute, that it was constant, that it was persistent, and that it was personified and embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite observations about the first Christian centuries and, and the the, the many martyrdoms that took place so heroically. Uh, the comment was made in regard to those martyrdoms by Marcellino uh, D'Ambrosio, a great scholar of early Christianity. And he said, the thing you have to understand about people like Polycarp and, and Ignatius and others, he said, they didn't die for an idea. They died for a person. And so everything about early Christianity was focused on the person of Jesus Christ and this intimate relationship with him and the conviction that he was literally in the image of the father. And so one way to think about the progressive kind of derailing of Christianity is as the redefining through subsequent phases of the love of God, that God becomes redefined rather than being parental, he's seen more as sovereign rather than punishment being disciplinary or educative, it becomes retributive. Rather than thinking of God's love as universal, it becomes very particularized and conditional. And this happens at very specific moments that we can identify, and that's part of what Fiona and I have tried to do in our work. We're not the first to make these identifications, but we think it's important to know if we, if we think the restoration was necessary and accomplished, then where was it derailed? We have to know why the corrections were necessary. And so we can locate most of these really crucial corruptions in the early fifth century when Augustine completely reinvents Christianity um, and moves us from universalism to particularism, from free will to predetermination, from uh, punishment is educative to punishment is retributive. And the list just goes on and on and on. And so we can still talk about the love of God after that but it, it becomes a very different love indeed. And so what Fiona and I are trying to say in this book, All Things New, is that we can track many of the, the wounds, the traumas, the, 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 the feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness and unhappiness. We can trace many of these to our inheritance 
of these corrupt notions. Because one thing that I've learned above all else as, as a historian, and most of my training was in intellectual history, is that it's hard to appreciate how significantly our language and our concepts are shaped by our particular cultural moment. And so even Joseph Smith and the early prophets are laboring under the burden of a cultural inheritance. And no prophet is able to completely transcend his historical moment and exist in this vacuum where he can receive vertical revelation without any filters that condition or alter or restrain the, the purity of that revelation. And so this is why we think it's so important to refer to President Nelson's comment that the restoration is ongoing, that it's a process. We still have uh, a long ways to go and much to be revealed. And we, we think that part of this work that still is being undertaken and needs to continue is a reformulation of the language that we have been using that is almost entirely an inheritance of the Protestant forebears um, who, who endowed the Christian vocabulary with what we think are, are all kinds of really damaging uh, presuppositions and baggage. Hmm. Well, I feel like this is something that I'm maybe just in the last few years of my life really starting to come to understand. That as you say that our theology, if we're going to get it, we have to really understand who God is at the core. And this idea that we've inherited these corrupt views of this impassable God <laughs> who is looking for, for retribution, to yeah. looking to punish instead of this God of immeasurable love, that, that that's really tripped a lot of us up in the church. Yeah, and, and we encounter a fair number of Latter-day Saints who are convinced that the scriptures need to be taken literally. And that if they refer to God's anger and wrath and judgment, then that's the God they're going to embrace. Uh, to which my response is, well, I'm not going to try to change your mind if, if you're comfortable and, and happy with that God. But I would like to at least ask one question. And that is, can you give me one moment in your life as a parent when it was appropriate to treat your child with retributive punishment? not to educate, not to discipline, not to instruct, not to improve, but just to punish for the violation of a rule. And I've yet to come across a parent who can say, oh yeah, I can give you a few examples of that. So we recognize that parental love is not consistent with that kind of anger, wrath, or retribution. And yet we persist in many cases in trying to impute that behavior to God. And I think it was uh, Elder Holland, a conference or two ago, who quoted William Ellery Channing, a great 19th century uh, religious figure, who said one of the two greatest pillars of Christianity is the parental nature of God. And I think one of the great strengths of Latter-day Saint teachings is that we take that more literally than just about any other Christian tradition in our past. But it has become too much of a cliche in our own language, right? I'm a child of God. We sing it. We believe it. We teach it. But we don't follow through with the analogy to recognize the fullest implications of that. Um, in, in a related regard, I'm reminded of something that 
um, I think one of the most beautiful things ever spoken by a, a poet was by my favorite figure of the past, Thomas Traherne, great um, but little recognized poet. He said, no man who seeth the beauty of God's face can ever willingly or wittingly forsake him. And I think those phrases are really key, wittingly or willingly. Now, many people clearly are deserting the, the faith of their fathers in our tradition and others. I have no doubt they're doing it willingly, but the question is, are they doing it wittingly? And so it's my personal belief and Fiona's belief that if we really understood the impact of Joseph's conception of our heavenly parents, it would be impossible to ever turn our backs on faith in those figures uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I'll just give you one example. I was uh, interviewed by a Jewish radio host uh, from Philadelphia many years ago in response to a, a flap that had erupted in the press because a Holocaust victim had been baptized for the dead. Um, and so I was asked if I would go on air to talk about this practice among the Latter-day Saints. I said I would, not knowing the host was Jewish, and that his very first question out of the gate would be, what are you doing baptizing my dead ancestors? And I said, I said, Latter-day Saints believe that our Heavenly Father anticipates a great feast at the end of time when his entire human family will be gathered around him, and he wants no empty seats at the table. And we believe as Latter-day Saints that it's our privilege to send out the invitations. And that's what we're doing when we baptize for the dead. And we don't think you have to attend, but we believe everybody needs to be invited. And he said, what do I do to get my name on your list? <laughs> so clearly he was half joking, but at the same time, I think he was recognizing what an unimaginable generosity you impute to God to think that not only does he want every child to return to his presence, but he's prepared the means for those ordinances to take place that can ensure their bonding to him an eternal relationship. That's the kind of vision that Joseph Smith was trying to put into place with his temple theology. And I just think we have yet to appreciate the full implications of a God who is that determined and that willing and that capable of bringing us all back into his holy presence. And we believe that that is the destiny of the human family. And it's, it's significant in this regard that we've never heard of a Latter-day Saint who abandoned their faith because they believed God was too generous or they didn't want to make room for a heavenly mother in the pantheon or because they didn't believe that our spirits are children. In other words, it's the institution that always somehow gets in the way. Hmm. And so I think part of what Fiona and I have tried to do in our work is to refocus our attention on the Christ, on the doctrines that bring us to him, and to see the institution in what we think is a, is, is a, a healthier way, which, and, and the way I would put it is this, I, I would say that the institution is to be valued because it's, it's that church that has most fully revealed the true Christ. It gives us the most practical resources to emulate him, and it stewards those holy powers that empower us to be eternally at one with him. But 
the church is secondary to the Christ uh, that it that it points us and guides us toward. And uh, it, in some ways it was much easier to be a first century Christian. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe this is why so many of them were willing to, to go to the, the flames is because there wasn't this enormous bureaucratic institution that interposed itself between them and Christ. They existed as a small community of persecuted, marginalized people who drew together in love and felt a direct connection to the, the healer. And today it's, it's hard to remember, oh yeah, all of this stuff is just a set of resources that facilitate our return to, to a heavenly family. And things get out of order. Um, and, and that seems to me to be a precondition for anybody who has faith crisis or, or leaves the church. I interviewed Stephen Harper some months ago. And one thing that he said was that the essentially the true gift that Joseph gave us and why people were so drawn to what he preached was that he introduced us to the true God, yeah. this God of love. And I, I love that. And I think you're absolutely right that if we fully understand and embrace this God of love that I think is, is best represented through the life of Christ. And that, I mean, we know that, as you said in your book, it, it wasn't just a metaphor when Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. <laughs> he was being straight with us. We can take his word for it. And so I think getting past the institution, recognizing its place, um, but finding a clearer, more direct line to this God of love can hopefully help some of us navigate the faith challenges that so many people are struggling with. You've clarified that some of these pre-restoration notions about God and sin and salvation that were so predominant in Joseph Smith's day do continue to color our perception of these topics. How do you feel like that has most blatantly impacted us as a church membership? And perhaps you feel like you've already spoken to this, but yeah. anything else? Yeah, I could elaborate just a little bit because, you know, Hune and I use this word sovereign with a very deliberate meaning that has a historical resonance of which not everybody is aware. But what happens in the early centuries, especially when the Western Latin church fathers become the dominant voices rather than the Eastern fathers and, and fathers like Tertullian and others who are trained uh, in the legal profession, they begin to endow the gospel with all kinds of legal metaphors and legal analogies and legal language. And so one of the most obvious signs of this shift is the notion of sovereignty. So increasingly, God is seen as this sovereign ruler, like a liege lord, and we are vassals. And we have to beware lest we offend the honor or the dignity of this liege lord. And he demands absolute obedience and subservience of us. And this image is, it's concretized and formalized in creeds like the Westminster Confession, where the word sovereign is used, and where we are specifically told that we are created for God's glory. That is preached from the pulpit by any number of Protestants today. It's part of the Baltimore Catechism of the Catholic Church. Why were you created? The answer, for God's glory, just as a servant or a vassal exists for the glory of the Lord or the King. And Joseph Smith's conception of God is a complete repudiation of that. No, God is our father. He wants peers 
not servants, not slaves, not subjects. So it's some level we know that, but our language continues to be very transactional. We're afraid of offending him. We're afraid that we're gonna to have to be punished, that we're gonna be judged for our deficiencies in this regard. And none of, none of those attitudes make sense in the context of a child to parent relationship. I, I think one of the most beautiful moments in all of Restoration Scripture is in Moses chapter seven. Now, Fiona has talked about this repeatedly about, you know, this is where we encounter face to face the weeping God. But one aspect of that encounter that we hadn't appreciated until recently, we focus on the question, why are you weeping? Three times, why are you weeping? And the very, the, the precise wording of the response is incredibly revelatory. Because what, what, what God does at this moment is he repeats the two great commandments. He says, well, I gave you the two great commandments, right? To, 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 to worship and serve me, your father, and to love one another. But behold, look at these people there without affection, and every man seeketh the blood of his neighbor. In other words, what is the source of his being distraught? It's not that we're failing to honor him as our liege lord. That would be the Augustinian or the Calvinist or the Protestant historical conception. No, he's weeping because we're, we're hating each other. And I think, where could you find a truer window in any scripture, anywhere in the canon, into the genuinely parental nature of God? Because a parent can identify with that. A parent wouldn't say, well, I'm disappointed that you don't honor me. No, but a parent could say, I just wish you treated each other better as brothers and sisters. And so it's just, like I said, it's this glorious moment where we realize, oh, Joseph really meant that when he taught that we have heavenly parents. And we see the psychology of eternal parenthood come through in that moment. So that's just another example of where if, we, if, if that lesson really sank in, that would change our relationship to heavenly father. We would see that he's a parent who wants us to love our, our, our brothers and sisters. He's not a parent preoccupied with his status and with our subservience and honor. And clearly we should honor and respect him. But it's telling that that's not the cause of his tears when we fail in that regard. It's when we fail to love each other. And so, of course, then Joseph develops a whole theology out of that, right? It's really interesting that in all the great conversion stories in history, um, well, you know, the, the famous ones that we're familiar with, Augustine, his conversion story, or John, Jonathan Wesley, his, right? Their conversion consists of an encounter with God, their sins are forgiven, and they then preach the good news of salvation. Well, Joseph's story starts that way, right? In the 1832 account, the voice of the Lord comes to him, Joseph, my son, your sins are forgiven. But that becomes the beginning, not the end of the story, as Joseph then goes to develop this entire theology of communal salvation, right? He doesn't, he doesn't go home and, and just say, okay, well, I'm happy. I got my salvation secured. <laughs> he goes on to recognize, oh, wait a minute. There's no Zion individual. It's about constructing what he, what he once calls the seeds of heaven in the practice of brotherly and sisterly love for which the church is constituted. And that's the way, that's why our church is organized and constituted in the way that it is, is to school us in the practice of that kind of love. 
not just the love of the father and mother, but the love that goes horizontally as, as, as well. And so, right, Joseph translates the book of Moses, the, the pivotal chapters in December of 1830. And immediately what happens in January, February of 1831, he immediately launches the Zion Project. And suddenly we're trying to practice communalism and the law of consecration and all of these things that become oriented around trying to create this people which is a real novelty in Christian history that we, we sometimes don't recognize the peculiarity of it, right? Uh, Charles Dickens, he's observing all of this from afar in England, right? And he says, it sure sounds funny to talk about a church having a place. <laughs> the Mormon religion has a place of gathering. Um, well, yeah, because that's the only way in which we can begin to construct the rudiments of heaven. And, uh, and that's, that's what we're supposed to be about. So again, that just seems like a radical differentiator it should alter the way we see each other uh, sitting in the pews on Sunday, not as just kind of co-faithful, but as, oh, these are the people that I have to learn how to love with a divine godly love, because if I don't, then heaven can't be conceived in any other way or terms. And so we begin that project now. So I love the fact that it's, there's a this worldliness to the gospel. Um, probably the most popular theological figure writing today is N.T. Wright, right? He sold millions of books. Everybody loves N.T. Wright. What is his main message? It all boils down to one simple claim that we have to stop thinking about heaven as otherworldly and recognize that heaven has to begin here. Well, Joseph Smith was teaching that in 1830. Mm -hmm. And that's the essence, really, I think, of, of the Latter-day Saint message is that, no, we, we start the project now. We don't kind of enter into heaven as a reward. We build heaven with the materials that he's given us now. Anyhow, I think that was a very long answer to what <laughs> it was great. <laughs> well, and and to ask this next question again, I feel like some of this might be repetitive, but going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, those questions that I read from your introduction, um, mm -hmm. I do really feel like the anxiety and the shame that so many Latter-day Saints are plagued with really boils down to a key misunderstanding around these concepts. Yeah. So how can, and again, you've been speaking to this, but I want this to be just clear as day to those who are listening. How can a clear understanding of these particular restored truths, this understanding of, of God's true nature and his parental role, how can that understanding change how we view ourselves, yeah. how we view God and our relationship to God and how we relate to our fellow men. Okay. Let me answer that by focusing on two words in particular, and then on a story from the new Testament. So Fiona and I um, both work. She was working at the Maxwell. Uh, I'm still working at the Maxwell Institute. We have a number of young research assistants who are mostly undergraduates are the, the pre-work for all things new, before we knew we were going to write this book. We gave the assignment to eight or 10 of these research assistants. We said, would you go home and make a list of the words you hear in church that cause the greatest distress, uh, emotional anxiety to you? And so they, 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 they jumped into the task willingly. They were really thrilled to have this opportunity to give their views on how vocabulary is affecting them. 
as young Latter-day Saints. There was one word that appeared on every single list we got back from these students, and that was worthiness. Um, there, there seems to be a quasi-universal sentiment among Latter-day Saints that they feel they are continually on trial for their worthiness and that they can never measure up to that standard of perfection that, that they think is expected of them. And associated with that, right, the flip side of that concept of worthiness is judgment, right? So, you know, Fiona relates the story of where she was given a, a fireside to return missionaries and, and it, it went over very well. There's a beautiful spirit until at the very end, one of young men raised his hands and he said, I, I love everything you've said, but what about judgment? And she said, I think in, a, in, a, in an inspired moment, she said, well, how do you feel when you hear the word judgment? And he said, I feel afraid. And she said, well, feelings of fear never come from the Lord. So clearly you're misapprehending something in connection with that word. So I think the, the language of Abraham can sometimes confuse us when it talks about we will right, create this world and we will prove them herewith. Well, one exercise that I suggest to, to Latter-day Saints who are interested in these kinds of questions and pursuits is, is go online and, and look up these words that trouble you in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary to see what they meant in Joseph Smith's day when he is using them. And sometimes the results can be quite illuminating. To prove in the Webster's Dictionary of that era means to reveal a hidden characteristic or to bring something to the foreground that was unknown. So I, I think we have to get rid of this notion that we're all sitting for a final exam and God is grading our papers to see if we pass or fail. That's not the role any parent has. We have to see him as laboring alongside of us throughout the process as an untirable, an untiring and untirable tutor who's, who's just gonna make sure that, that, that we, we get everything that we need to get under our belts so that we can continue to move and progress. I think uh, Elder Uchtdorf, I think, affirmed this understanding of, of judgment when he said in a beautiful conference talk two years ago that the day of judgment will be a day of healing and mending of hearts, not a day of, of, of being assigned to, to various punishments or, or penalties. So the scripture that I would invoke in this regard is the lovely story uh, forgive me, I think it's Mark 10. Is that the story of the rich young ruler and uh, who comes to Christ, right? And what must I do? And he says, well, you know the commandments. And he says, these I have, I've kept from my youth. Now, we remember the outlines of the story, but this is how we remember it. We remember that the Lord then says, well, then sell all that you have. And the, and the young ruler went away sad because he had many possessions. But we've left out the most important moment in the whole story. The most important moment is midway through the story. Mark tells us, and then the Lord beholding him, loved him. Now that hits me like a thunderbolt because the placement of that expression is before the young ruler proves himself worthy or unworthy. It's before the final exam beholding him. Jesus loved him. So the love is there. The love is the precondition. The love is our 
default relationship. God's love for us and his determination that we are worthy of his love was made before he ever offered his life on our behalf. If his love were in any way contingent or dependent upon our worthiness, then he'd be, he, he would wait to die on the cross until the story was over, but he hasn't. And so his determination of our worthiness has already been made, as far as I can see, and as I understand the scripture. Um, he's hurt. He might be sad for us. He might be disappointed. He might be hoping and wishing that we'll do better, but he's not waiting to see if we deserve his love, as I understand Mark's story, at least. It's interesting when you've read something so often and yet missed something as I think as key as that, that he, he did love him before the young man decided he wasn't quite ready to sell his riches. And I, I do think that many of us, even if we are taught that God's love is always there, there's something that keeps us from embracing that idea. And that, that is one of the primary goals of this podcast is to emphasize that God's grace is present always working always in our lives and that he will meet us where we are at and that he's playing the long game and he's not waiting for any of us to prove anything to him necessarily. He's looking for opportunities for us to learn and grow and giving those opportunities to us. I think think that's evident too in the temple recommend interview process. Now, um, I hope I'm not Um, saying something out of order here, but I don't believe in any official church document. It's called a worthiness interview. It's called the Temple Recommend interview. We tend to think of it as a worthiness interview, which I think is a terrible way to think of it because it doesn't, nothing nothing in that interview process tells us how worthy we are. We're not asked, do you love your neighbor? Do you beat your dog? Are you kind (laughs) to strangers? Those are the questions that would assess, right? Spiritual maturity and growth. I think that more is here's a minimum standard to show that you're committed and, and, and God will meet you here. If you're just willing to show this minimal level of commitment, that's how I see it. So stop thinking of, of it as, a, as, as, as worthy because that, that just seems to me a inaccurate and, 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 and a defeatist way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that we've answered how an understanding of this doctrine can clarify how we should view ourselves as God's children and what he's up to (laughs) with this whole earth experience. Um, And again, how we view God, but how we relate to our fellow men. This was something that really struck me as I was listening to your book. Obviously we know that the two great commandments are inseparable. We cannot love God without loving his children. And um, in chapter 15, in your book, Onworthiness, I feel like we can miss the mark, as you said, by focusing too much on our personal worthiness. We, we then neglect the weightier matter of caring for and loving God's children. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be actively working toward greater obedience to all of God's laws and commandments, which, by the way, I believe are there as a protection and as a way for God to show his love. When we keep God's laws, we are happier because we are trying to live as he is. And God is happy. <laughs> he keeps yeah. these laws. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes we, we get laser focused on our own worthiness and 
we try and become in isolation. We, we become engrossed in self, which is contrary to God's plan. But he put us in families. He put us in communities and, and in ward families so that we can gather and uplift and teach and mourn with and strengthen each other. Anyway, I feel more and more tarot like, well, the, the best way to show God that we love him is by loving his children. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the only way, I think. That's the only way. In fact, I'm, I'm glad you brought this point up because there are a few things I would say about it. One is, you know, as the monastic system develops in the early Christian church in the fourth century, there, there's a controversy that almost immediately erupts because some of the church fathers are very much into supporting this monastic movement and which in many cases takes the form of solitary monks in their cells, right? Devoting themselves to prayer and devotions. But there are other church fathers who go, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is contrary to the original thrust of Christianity, which is all about creating a kind of social harmony and interconnectedness. And so the monastic system kind of bifurcates in those two directions. You have some like the Desert Fathers, who it's all about solitude, seeking their own spirituality. And you have others that are, no, we have to find ways to be, to, to create microcosmic communities here where we can practice those loves of Christian charity. So to me, that shows that this temptation has always been present in Christianity to become so focused on our spirituality that it becomes completely self-serving. I love the fact that President Nelson has suggested this a couple of times in his talks that the quest for spirituality can be selfish. Uh, my favorite theologian uh, from the Anglican tradition is Kenneth Kirk, who wrote a wonderful book, The Vision of God about 50 years ago. And he said, the minute you institutionalize a church, the minute it becomes an institution. You, you've, you've crossed a threshold where you're now in danger of always measuring your own righteousness against this set of standards and teachings and principles. Now he admits there isn't any other way. We need organized religion, but that's the omnipresent danger. I think the Latter-day Saint tradition tends to do an excellent job of thwarting that temptation because of the, the prevalence of service opportunities, the call to missionary work, the ministering program, all of these constructs that force us into proximity and interaction with each other so that we can't, um, it comes at a cost, right? We don't have a contemplative tradition in the Latter-day Saint faith. We don't have any great mystics or spiritual figures of the past who've retreated right into the, went, went into the desert and, and had these visionary experiences. Um, but on balance, I think it's it's been worth the trade-off because we believe that Christianity is in in the doing mm -hmm. and in the community, right? There's no Zion individual. So I just have to emphasize how much I love that concept because as a woman in the church who can tend toward perfectionism a little bit, <laughs> I'm a recovering perfectionist, is what I like to say. Um, recognizing that that God, He doesn't have a measuring stick up next to me all the time, but that I have an opportunity to grow and progress at yeah. my own rate and speed, which He is totally fine with, I believe. <laughs> yeah. But that the less focused I am on my own reward or my own <laughs> spirituality. And the more I can turn outward and look at my fellow yeah. brothers and sisters and see how I can help them on their way home, yeah. Then, yeah. I, then I can rid myself of that shame and that anxiety, and I can be helping my brothers right. and sisters, which right. is what God right. wants us to do. 
that's beautiful. I you probably remember in this regard that Fiona and I have pointed out that you know there isn't any one correct reading of any scripture. I don't think they're they're often infinitely rich, but we do suggest an additional way of thinking about the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the, the famous be perfect. And that's a disputed reading because the actual Greek verb there is in the future tense. It's not an imperative. It can be read that way, but the, the actual literal Greek original is you shall be whole. And so we like to read that as an assurance that Heavenly Father has given to the recovering perfectionists. What he's saying is, do these things, take my counsel, love your neighbor, and you will become whole and complete. So one can read it as an assurance and uh, an encouragement not to impose impossible burdens and expectations on oneself, but to just relax, trust that the Lord is going to get us there step by step. Absolutely. So we've talked about how the vocabulary we use impacts our understanding of gospel truths and our relationship with God and each other. And you've already noted two words that seem to be problematic for many, worthiness and judgment. Are there any other words we use frequently as Latter-day Saints that when understood better uh, would provide additional clarity and peace? I give this not with any professions of certainty, but as just food for thought. We we do think that the most critical word in our religious vocabulary may very well be atonement. And we wouldn't presume to give an authoritative explanation or definition of, of, of the word when even as great a mind as James Talmadge said, nobody understands exactly what was happening in the garden. But we would say this, that the way it's described in Alma and in Second Nephi, um, and the original language that we translate as atonement, and especially the emphasis really throughout the Book of Mormon on atonement is on a process that is unfolding rather than something that happened in the past. And it seems to me that it would just be so much healthier for ourselves and our community if we thought of atonement as this ongoing project to become reconciled with each other and with God, to put ourselves into alignment. And so I, I think that's clearly intimated by the meaning of the term, right? At oneing was the original phrase, to become at one. So how could Christ have accomplished that in one moment, one event? Clearly he didn't. What he did do, according to, to Alma and, and Second Nephi, was he suffered the pains of all living creatures. Now that may include sin, but we tend to boil it down to sin and think of, right, this is the moment when he pays this debt. And, and that's a very Calvinist notion, penal substitution. I, I think it might be much healthier to think that it was an act of supreme and infinite empathy, that somehow God understood the human condition in the fullest scope and range. He understood what it meant to be wounded and hurt and damaged. He understood what it meant to sin and incur the consequences of our own bad choices, but it's a much more comprehensive concept that makes it possible for us to trust that he knows us intimately. And that's why I love the language of the Book of Mormon, right? That that offering draws us to him. 
So stop thinking of it as some kind of mathematical equation. There's X amount of sins and this amount of punishment and it wipes the slate clean. That's all the inherited Protestant language of atonement. And I think the Book of Mormon gives us a fresh way to think about it as an ongoing process of reconciliation where we become co-workers, collaborators with God and bringing about this oneness of the human family. I love the message shared in this book and in other books that you and Fiona have, have written about just understanding at, at the, the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this great love, which our father and our heavenly mother and our, our brother have for us. Without that, we will struggle to find the peace and the joy that is offered to us through this good news. That I, as I said at the beginning, I feel like this is the best news. And as I come to understand it in more depth, the more grateful I am to understand how inclusive and how merciful our father's plan is and that we can trust him with our lives and our hearts. But ultimately for you, how has a correct understanding of these principles brought you greater peace and helped you find greater joy in the gospel? Well, I think that all of these beautiful ideas are just abstractions until we experience the kind of love that you and I have been talking about tonight. And the question is, how do we personally experience that? And until and unless we have, then our relationship to the gospel is always a theoretical one. And so in my personal life, I feel like these ideas, these doctrines have prepared the ground. They've given me a compelling intellectual and theological appreciation for the beauty, the logic, the moral rightness of the gospel. But it's only because they impel me to experience the kind of love of God that they describe that I can actually claim to be an aspiring disciple. And it has mostly been moments when I have encountered the writings of those who have encountered the divine in our own tradition or others, that I've been able to vicariously experience some of that and enter into a prayer relationship where I have felt the same intimations of divine love. And if we aren't using the resources of the restored institution in order to make that possible, then I think that we're members in vain. I love the repeated promises made throughout scripture that, it, that, that every individual can see the face of God and know that he is, that every individual can encounter the spirit in a personal way as Nephi did, that you just don't have to hear the language of your father or others. That if you are devoted enough to that ideal, then as Enos wrestling through the night, you can actually have this dialogic in, encounter. And so uh, for me, that's, that's the kind of discipleship that I aspire to and that I, I believe the church is guiding me toward. Well, before I let you go, Terrell, why do you continue to choose this faith tradition? Why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Christ and his restored church? 
there are so many reasons. Um, so I'll just give two or three. One, because the enlightenment promised to bring about a renovation of the human condition. It promised that as science and knowledge and reason displaced darkness and myth, that we were entering a new era of human happiness and progress. There is nothing better about the human condition today than there was 300 years ago or 500 years ago. Uh, rationalism has proven to be an important asset in science and technology, but it certainly hasn't helped us to find greater meaning or fulfillment in life. Uh, I am absolutely convinced that there is nothing more essential to human happiness than loving relationship. There is no other theological system or faith tradition that puts human relationships and their enduring status in the eternities front and center in their religious tradition. And finally, simply put, uh, I'm too much a student of romanticism to not realize the fallacy of thinking that spirituality can be a substitute for religion. That's one of the, the greatest and most dangerous myths of our day. Spirituality is all about the self. Religion acknowledges the necessity of working together, uh, of human interdependence. And frankly, I don't have enough confidence in myself and my own powers of self-transcendence to believe for a moment that I can achieve my greatest potential as a human being or as an eternal spirit without uh, participating in this school of love that we call the restored church. I love it. Thank you so much, Terrell. I really, really am so grateful that you would spend this time with me tonight. Happy to be with you. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschristsrpodcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about Still Rowing. Thanks again for listening.